Well, I have been given the topic tonight to speak on the subject of Calvinism and unconditional election. Um, John and I spoke, and I was preparing the messages, and by the time I got to this message, I'd forgotten exactly what he wanted. So I called him again, and he emailed me and told me what, what he wanted. Now, what I'm, let, let, let me tell you what I'm going to do, and then we'll do it with the Lord's help, and uh, see, see how this goes. Um, basically, the thematic idea that I want to talk to you tonight is God's gracious, gracious sovereignty and salvation is often misunderstood. Now, notice how I put that. God's gracious, gracious sovereignty in salvation is often misunderstood. And sometimes, my friends, it's the fault of those who call themselves Calvinists that it's misunderstood. And I'll be talking more about that in the next session when I talk about missions and evangelism, missions and Calvinism. Um, so I'm going to be talking about the five points of Calvinism. Uh, the first misconception is to think that John Calvin enunciated these five points in his writings. He did not. I imagine most of you, a lot of you know that, but a lot of people do not understand that. It is true that he taught these truths, but not under the acronym that many are familiar with. You've all heard TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, P, perseverance of the saints. And frankly, it's my conviction that some of the terminology leads to some misunderstanding. And we'll talk about that as we go along as well. Well, where did these five points come from if John Calvin didn't invent the acronym? Well, really, they in a sense originated in Holland by a group of men, about 45 pastors, who were led by a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. Arminius, who was from the Netherlands, um, along with these other ministers, had a problem, a problem with, with what was commonly believed in the Reformed churches in the Netherlands. And as had been confessed in the Belgic Confession of Faith and also in the Heidelberg Catechism. So they presented these remonstrances in 1610. And Arminius was a professor at the Leiden University in the Netherlands. And there was a good deal of debate regarding them. Arminius died before the Synod of Dort came about. The Synod of Dort is where these five remonstrances were dealt with. So the five points of Calvinism really weren't originated as five points of Calvinism. They were originated as five points of disagreement with the Belgian Confession and with the Heidelberg Catechism. The Synod of Dort met from 1616 through 1619 with 154 sessions. Now that's a little hard for us, at least for me, to understand that they would spend that much time dealing with this, but they did. After the first 57 sessions, uh, it became obvious that the disagreement was very deep and uh, those who followed Joseph, Jacob Arminius were dismissed from the assembly 
And from there on, in the remaining sessions that they had were just by the uh, Dutch Reformed Church there in the Netherlands. So the, the order that we think of in Tulip is not even the order that was dealt with in the, uh, in the Synod of Dort. Actually, they, saw, they dealt first of all with the doctrine of unconditional election. That was the first doctrine they dealt with. And then they dealt with others. They combined two of the doctrines um, and, and, and dealt with them as well. But we're going to just keep the order that we're familiar with as we deal with this. First of all, total depravity. Um, I want to define the term first and then talk about misconceptions. Now I understand that this session is really not a preaching session, it's more of a lecture. Um, I'm not much of a lecturer, but I will lecture if I need to, and I hope the Lord will help me to, to give this lecture tonight. Well, what is total depravity? Well, an excellent definition for most of these doctrines can be found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Belgic Confession of Faith, and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, or commonly called the 1689. And I'm going to be using the 1689 because I'm a Baptist and I'm a Reformed Baptist. But those, all, all those confessions agree with one another, basically. But here is how total depravity is explained and defined in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, in chapter 6. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we, in them whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Now, to put that in understandable English, what our confession is saying is this, that when Adam sinned, it affected the entire human race, and it affected every single part of every man. That is, his mind, his will, his emotions, his conscience, and any other faculty that you can think of in man. That, that sin tainted everything. I read an illustration just the other day. It's like when there is a, um, a fire in a major factory and it's totaled. Or, and what we mean by that is it's totaled. It doesn't mean that every single part of the factory is destroyed. Oh, by no means. The machines are still there. The structure still may be there. But at the very least, smoke damage has impacted the entire factory in such a way that, is it, that it is inoperable. Well, that's sort of a good illustration. It lacks, I think, in many ways. But that's what we mean by total depravity. Every single part of it. It does not mean that every man is as bad as he possibly could be. Thank God for that. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Not every man is like a Hitler or a Mao Zedong. Thank God for that. But it does mean that every man has been affected by sin in every part of his being. It does not mean that man has lost his will. We believe in free will. 
We believe that every man can do exactly what he wants to do. And that every man does exactly what he wants to do. We do not believe that God has put a gun to a man's head and said, Now you sin whether you want to or not. No, it's not that way at all. In fact, one of the chapters in our confession is entitled Free Will. What do we mean by free will? Well, we simply mean that, uh, that God is, and I'm reading from our confession now, God has endued the will of man with the natural ability and power of acting upon choice. That is, it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. The problem with man is not that he doesn't have a will. The problem with man is that it's a moral problem. And the moral problem is that his heart is inclined to evil and to do sin rather than doing good. So we're talking about a moral problem here, not a physical problem. You came here tonight because you decided to come. That was an act of your will. But um, we have a moral problem. And sin has affected man's will. But more of that later. Well, the second is unconditional election. But I'm going to save that for the last 10 minutes of this session. And if I'm going to have 10 minutes for, for unconditional election, I'm going to have to hurry through the rest of them. The third point is limited atonement. Uh, I prefer the term particular redemption or definite atonement. What do we mean by definite atonement? Well, I'm going to summarize a paragraph from J.I. Packer as he describes and defines definite atonement or particular redemption. Uh, this simply means that when Christ died, that God had him put him on the cross for a purpose and an intention to save the people whom he had chosen. Now, we haven't talked about unconditional election yet, but we'll do that. But assuming unconditional election, then God set forth Christ to actually secure their salvation. Not just to make the salvation of every man, woman, and child possible, but He actually redeemed us by the blood of His Son. Made our salvation absolutely certain by the death of His Son, because that was the intent of the death of Christ. This does not mean that there's any limit on the value of Christ's death. If God had intended to save every single man, woman, and child in the world who ever lived, Christ would not have had to suffer any more than He suffered. Because his, the value of His death is infinite in its value. Furthermore, we can say that the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient. Another way of putting it. Sufficient to save everyone. But God's intention was only to save those whom He had chosen, the elect. And so that's what we mean by, by limited atonement. It's not a limit of the value. It's not a limit of the sufficiency. It's limited only in its intention and purpose. And the purpose was actually to save people. Well, the fourth point of Calvinism, the I, is irresistible grace. I prefer the term efficacious grace. Um, in the words of James White in his book, The Potter's Freedom, irresistible grace, he says, means one thing. God raises 
sinners to life. And I like that. God raises sinners to life. Our confession says, Those whom God has predestined unto life, He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time, effectually to call, by His Word and Spirit, now notice, by His Word and Spirit, so this bringing sinners to life uses means, the means of the Word of God, the Word of God preached, the Word of God read, and by His Spirit, the Spirit of God using the Word, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away a heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power determining them uh, to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they may most freely be made willing by His grace. Or to put it away, put it another way, irresistible grace is not about the sinner resisting God's grace. Now, sinners do resist His grace. No, irresistible grace, you must look at it from God's perspective. Irresistible grace means that God works in such a way that the sinner willingly because of God's work, comes to Christ because He wants to. If you're a Christian here tonight, I know something about you. You wanted to come to Christ. And you still want Christ. And the question is, why do you want Christ? Ah, it is because the Spirit of God gave you life and gave you that desire. I know personally that if if the Spirit of God had not given me life, I wouldn't be here tonight. I would not have chosen Christ. Oh, I know I chose Him. Of course, you chose Him. But why did I choose Him? It's because of the grace of God. Only because of the grace of God and God giving life. So, um, that is... Um, that is... That matter. Well, the fifth matter is... Perseverance of the saints. Um, what do we mean by perseverance of the saints? Well, this doctrine simply teaches that everyone that has been chosen by God, Christ has secured their salvation by His death, the Spirit of God has given them life, will persevere in that faith to the very end. When I was coming to study the doctrines of grace, it was this doctrine specifically that, that really put a hook in my mind. Because I was taught in my youth, not Calvinism, I was taught basically Arminianism in some form or another. And I was taught, once saved, always saved. And you know, if you define that correctly, it's true. But there can be a huge error in putting it that way. Because some people think, well, once saved, always saved. Then I've made my decision for Christ. I've decided to come for Christ. It doesn't matter how I live after that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they what? They follow me. They follow me. Sheep follow 
the shepherd. Because they come to love the shepherd. The shepherd has feeds them. The shepherd cares for them. And they get attached to the shepherd, so they follow the shepherd. And that's the way it is with every true Christian. So that's what we mean by perseverance of the saints. That those whom God has effectually called, as our confession says, and sanctified by His Spirit, and given this faith, never can fall away completely and totally. But rather they are kept by the power of God unto the end. Being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Now let's talk about unconditional election, since that is the topic of this entire conference. Um, what is this doctrine? Well, I'm going to read extensively now from our London Baptist Confession of Faith. In chapter 3, God's decree. There is not a chapter in our confession titled Unconditional Election. Everything about election is under this heading of the decree of God. God's decrees are, He has decrees of, of providence, and He has these eternal decrees. And as, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, He has decreed all things that come to pass. There's just no surprises in the universe. We're surprised, but God is not surprised because He decreed it. So everything that happens, you say even sin, well, there is a permissive decree that God has given. So that even sin is part of God's plan. We don't understand why it is that He decreed that, but indeed He did by His permissive decree. But to the point about election, in chapter 3, starting at paragraph 3, we read this. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. Others, being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of His glorious justice. I want you to notice something about this. Election is God foreordaining and predestinating out of the mass of sinful men, some to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of His grace. Oh, my dear friends, if we're ever to understand this doctrine, we've got to understand something of the grace of God. I think the reason that men do not, do not understand the doctrine of unconditional election is many times because they don't understand the doctrine of, of, of sin and of the severity of sin. Uh, Right now, my, my wife and I make it a practice to read through the Bible once a year. And we read the same passages. We, we don't read them together. She reads upstairs on her iPad, and I read downstairs either from my Bible or computer. But right now we're in Ezekiel. And, and, and when you read, what, some of those sections in Ezekiel speak about the severity of the justice and the judgment of God against sin. It's really frightening. And you realize sin is very serious in the eyes of God. It's extremely serious. It's so serious that he said he was going to bring this destruction upon Jerusalem. He was going to, to destroy people because they violated his covenant. And we read in the New Testament, for the wages of sin is death. 
And if we ever come to understand, and I don't know if we can ever fully comprehend how, 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 um, how loathsome sin is in the eyes of a holy God. And when Adam sinned, and we all follow Adam, we're all in Adam until we are in Christ, we are underneath the wrath and the judgment of Almighty God. And if God left us to ourselves, not a single one of us would ever love God. It's just not in us. It's just not in us because sin is this basic moral problem. And so that's why uh, the Bible says, to the praise of His glorious grace, that God has predestined or chosen a certain number of people out of the mass of sinful man to be the recipients of this special grace. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. It is, it is His grace that has chosen us. And, and, and if He hadn't chosen us, we would be still in our sins. You see, God doesn't choose everyone. He leaves some people to do exactly what they want to do. And that is to reject Christ, reject the Gospel, reject the truth, and reject the revelation which He Himself has given. Um, our confession, I'm not, I don't have time to read to you all the paragraphs, but you'll, you'll find it in, in, in chapter 3 of God's decree. But I do want to reach paragraph 7 of chapter 3. It says, The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, that is calling, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. You notice, we've got to handle this doctrine with special care. There, if there is a proud Calvinist, a proud Calvinist is not a Christian. He's just not a Christian. Because one who understands the doctrine of election and the doctrine of sin and realizes that he's a child of God, it's a humbling thing. I have known proud Calvinists. I really have. And I, they're not Christians. They're just not Christians. Because the very truth of God's election humbles us to the dust. We say, why would He choose me? Knowing my sin, as I do know it, and I don't know it completely, why would He choose me? There's no reason. There's no reason. Except for the marvelous grace of God. What this doctrine does not mean. Well, first of all, it does not mean that the gospel is not to be preached to all men. I think it was Spurgeon who said, our duty of evangelism would be very, very simple if God marked on the back of every single man that was elect the, the, and wrote the word elect on his back. Ah, that's the one we're to preach to. But of course, that is not true. 
we're to preach the gospel to every creature. God chooses, but He uses the means of preaching and the Word of God to save men. It does not mean that the offer of salvation is not sincere. It is sincere. God freely offers Christ. Christ offers Himself to all men everywhere. Any man may come. And if a man doesn't come, it is his own fault. It is not the fault of God. Not the fault of God at all. And besides that, the Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure. Ezekiel tells us that. Um, furthermore, Calvinism does not mean fatalism. Fatalism believes, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future is not ours to see, que sera, sera. No, 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 no. It is true, everything is determined. But not only is the end determined, but the means to get to the end is determined. In other words, yes, God's going to save a people, but He's going to do it through your prayers and your evangelism. That's how He's going to do it. I heard a story once, it was told to me by a preacher. He told a story about a man who, uh, back in the days when there were nothing but horse and buggies, and the, the, the man heard a, a sermon about God's predestination. And uh, he got out of church and he was excited. He says, now God has determined everything. The decree of God is set. He had two ways to get home. One was the regular road and the other was a shortcut over a very rough road with a lot of uh, danger. He said, you know what? If, I, if my buggy's supposed to fall apart, it'll fall apart no matter which road I go on. So he took the rough road, went down it just as fast as he could, and the wheels came off and he wrecked his buggy. And he came to a right conclusion. God had decreed that he be stupid. And that's true, you see. We, 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 we take all caution, no matter, no matter what. It does, it, it, we're not fatalists. We use all the means that God has given. Um, also, it does not mean that the door to mercy is barred to anyone who actually wants to enter. My dear friends, if a man or a woman or a boy or a girl wishes to come to Christ, the door of mercy is open to them. And we tell them it is. You may come to Christ. In fact, there's even a command from our Lord Jesus Christ that sinners come to Him. And furthermore, election does not mean that a man or a woman or a boy or a girl has a right to lose, to, to, to live a loose life. Oh, no, 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 no. doesn't mean that at all. Uh, one who really comes to Christ, who has been chosen by God, he's chosen unto holiness. Chosen unto holiness. So, um, those are some of the misconceptions I hope that we will put out of our mind and that we will come to understand what this truly teaches. And whether you believe the doctrine or not, I hope that you will not set up a caricature of it, but rather recognize what we believe the Bible really teaches about this doctrine.